Hey everyone, welcome to the NetSuite podcast. I'm your host, Kendall Fisher, and I'm teaming up once again with our business and finance editor, Megan O'Brien, who's helping me co-host another Office of the CFO episode. Hi, Megan. Hi, Kendall. Thank you so much for having me again. It's good that you're not sick of me yet. No, not not sick of you quite yet, Megan. Um, in fact, I quite enjoy these uh, these opportunities that we have together. In fact, we've dedicated an entire mini series to the office of the CFO because the role has really uh, really evolved so drastically. I know you have written a lot about that, right? Yeah, extensively. Um, the days of the CFO's primary responsibility being internal controls and compliance and kind of being that back office role, that's long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, financial discipline, it's still critical, but today's CFOs have a lot more responsibility than their predecessors did. They're playing really key roles in developing strategy, fostering innovation, and driving growth. Well, and a lot of high expectations around the CFO uh, means there's a lot to talk about, which is great for us on this sort of mini series we're doing together, Um, how to navigate those expectations, the skills needed to be successful as a CFO today, the tools to help make sense of endless amounts of data and so much more. Yes. And we kicked off the series with Glenn Hopper, the CFO Sandline. And if you haven't listened yet, it's available to you now. And today we're chatting with Bola Williams-Ali, the author of Build Boldly and the CFO of Mancini Duffy, an architecture design firm. Bola is going to take us on her non-traditional journey to becoming a CFO, how she learned the skills necessary to be successful at each step of her career, the metrics she tracked as a controller for Mancini Duffy, and how that ties seamlessly to her role today. She'll also dive into the way her focus shifted among the pandemic and how technology has helped her navigate these tumultuous times throughout her career. And she'll conclude with what it means to be a bold finance leader and a really bold leader overall. I am so excited. She is an awesome interview. So enough about us, Megan. Let's get to it. You're listening to the NetSuite Podcast where we discuss what's happening within NetSuite, why we're doing it, and where we're heading in the future. We'll dive into the details about the software and the people at NetSuite who are behind all the moving parts. We'll also feature customer growth stories, discussing the ups and downs of running a company and how one integrated system can help your business continue to scale. Hi, Bola. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here today. And where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from New York City. Oh, amazing. New York's obviously, I mean, like everybody says this, one of my favorite places um, in the world, for sure. I always thought I'd end up in New York um, one day, but never made it there. I ended up staying in LA my whole life. Maybe, maybe the future, you know, the future is bright. You have to come visit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You have to come visit. Um, Now, as Megan knows, I am a big, um, admittedly nerdy fan of breaking the ice. So Bola to break the ice here, can you give us one fun fact about you? Sure. Uh, so fun fact about me is that I love to plan theme parties. So I actually have my daughter's birthday coming up tomorrow. We're doing an ultimate Valentine's night. Oh my gosh. For her and her little girlfriends. How fun. Okay. So 
if I, now that might be my fun fact. I love throwing themed parties. That is, it's so funny. My birthday is actually in March and, um, it is the day that basically the world, um, shut down in 2020, March 12th. Um, So I turned 30 on March 12th in 2020, actually. So I haven't, I haven't gotten together with any friends over the past two years, you know, for safety reasons. And this year I'm finally getting together with people and everybody, the first thing everybody asked was, so what's the theme? Are we wearing wigs? Are we going disco? Are we doing one time I did a, um, a Britney Spears themed birthday where everybody was perfect. Yeah. So I love that we have that in common. I love that. Um, yeah. Theme parties are great. It's the best. It's the best. It gives somebody, you know, people get to look forward to it. And, uh, I always think it just, you know, it adds a little fun touch to, to any party. So I love that we have that in common. And while I could sit here and talk about themed parties all day, I know that I want to get into your story, Bola, um, and your career journey. So let's dive in, um, as Megan and I noted in the opening of this episode, you're not only a CFO, but you're also an author. You recently published your book, Build Boldly, and we don't often see CFOs penning books. So you'll have to tell us what was your inspiration? Uh, my inspiration uh, when it came to writing Build Boldly was simply to share my playbook with others to inspire them to write their own playbooks. Individuals, other firm leaders, really thinking about how are you, how are you intentionally charting your path and how are you intentionally leading others to chart their own path? And mm-hmm. so um, I thought about my entire career journey over the last 15 years. You know, I moved to the States in 2002, Mm -hmm. and here I am, a Nigerian immigrant, moved here at 17, 15 years later, I have been able to become CFO and co-owner of a really rich architecture firm. What's there not to share, right? And my path here was not traditional at all. And so just thinking about themes that had come up over my career, um, moments where I was really bold was when I saw exponential growth. And um, I then decided to put it into a book, essentially creating a playbook for others to to learn from and be inspired by. Well, that's so interesting. And it it was one of the most, uh, I I thought one of my favorite parts of the book was kind of your journey and your non-traditional path. Can you tell us a little bit more about your move from Nigeria to the U.S. and what you studied in college and why? Of course. So... (laughs) Um, when I moved to the U.S., I, I laughed because I moved here wanting to study computer engineering. Um, my first semester in school, I took physics and it was absolutely horrible. So I, I picked up the phone <laughs> uh, and called my mother uh, to let her know I was going to be switching majors. And so um, the whole point of me coming to the States, of course, was to go to college. My mom um, you know, was fortunate to have her own first and second degree here. She went to Rutgers in New Jersey. And so it was very important for her that I also got the best of, you know, opportunities when it came to my uh, education. And so anyways, I picked up a phone, gave her a call and said, listen, I will be changing my major to mathematics. I always had an affinity for math uh, with a minor in ComSci and my college, Hunter College, which was based in New York, had an applied math program. Uh, which would allow you to use your math degree, you know, in corporate world if you chose to. I didn't know where I was going to end up, but, you know, it seemed like a really good program. Um, and she was very supportive of that. Right. So 
here I am. I changed my degree and um, and and essentially have stayed, you know, um, um, stayed here in the States. So you're not the only one who struggled with physics. I remember talking to my counselor and she's like, you're not thriving in physics, are you? I'm like, no. Oh, no. That was a path change for me, too. Physics tends to. Yeah, Um, but it's it's so funny because for me, um, even though I ran away from physics, I ended up doing like my master's thesis in fluid dynamics, which is like physics still. So... Um, I just approached it more from a mathematical standpoint. There you yeah, go. You came back. Um, <laughs> yeah. So how did you land your first job out of college? And uh, how do you think that first job set you up for your career path afterwards? Uh, I, this is this is like one of my own favorite stories slash memories that I have. Right. So in college, um, again, I pick math. I start doing my, you know, make, making it through the years but with no internship, right? So in New York City, a lot of the friends that I had um, either went to Baruch, which is a sister school of Hunter, and a lot of them were studying accounting finance. Now, I didn't want to do accounting or finance because my mother studied that, right? I was (laughs) the one child who said, I didn't want to go into the path of my mom. Um, But then you fast forward five years and you're about, you know, you're a senior, almost done with your program. And now I needed to find work. Uh, the way I found my first job was looking, you know, this is pre-Indeed, pre-LinkedIn. It was literally mm-hmm. looking into the New York Times classifieds. And I saw a position for a project, a junior project accountant in an architecture firm. Why did it catch my interest? Because I had taken technical drawing in high school for like a term. And I said, well, I think it would be interesting to you know, work in uh, an architecture firm. I have this connection to the industry, big connection to the industry. So I applied. Uh, that interview essentially is what was my introduction into the architecture and interior design industry and literally set me on this path that I've been. And so the key thing about, I think what sealed the deal for me with that interview was that I went into that interview being myself. I wasn't going to be afraid to speak up about my math degree and this like really hard topic I was doing in my thesis. You know, I, um, I made sure that I wasn't trying to be somebody else. You understand what I mean? And I mean that because again, I had all these friends who were getting like really high profile jobs at the big fours. And I was like, you know what? I, I just need to be me. This is a, this, this interview needs to seal the deal for me. I need to make sure I represent myself well. Well, it turns out that the interview were studied mathematics in school. And so we connected on that. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was it was really perfect. And within days, you know, I think I was maybe like two weeks to graduation. I was able to get, um, you know, I was able to get my first job, which is where a lot of my foundation came from. And I'm really grateful for the time I spent there. Wow. So first of all, what I'm impressed by is that. this isn't you, you know, in your forties learning like, Oh, I need to be more authentic to myself. You're 20 years old or so taking this interview and 21. I I literally had nothing, (laughs) nothing to lose. I was like, I have to go in, in here and be myself. Was there anything that made you realize that? Like, or does, was that just ingrained in you? I mean, cause that no, could be ingrained no, no. in you from your mom or school or friends no, or not at all. You know what? So I, I always, you know, I, I think back and I remember 
you know, applying for various jobs at the same, you know, um, financial services slash slash all the different places I applied to. And I remember going into those interviews, being really scared, being really timid. Um, and so, you know, when you have one, two, three <laughs> interviews that you feel like, you know, didn't go how you thought they, they should have, or you weren't representing yourself well, I literally had a choice to make. It was like an yeah. intentional choice to make um, at that moment. Like, what are you going to do? How are you going to show up? And, and I decided to take that leap on myself. I decided to bet on myself. I decided to be bold about, you know, how I approached that interview. I just remember how I felt. I felt really good. And I made a decision saying, no matter what the outcome, right? No matter what the outcome is, after I walk out this door, as long as I went into that interview and I felt like I was true to myself, that was a win for me. Whether or not I needed to like pack up, pack my bags and move back to Nigeria again, because <laughs> I was an international student. I knew right. that I wanted to make sure that that interview, I gave it my best shot. That's great. Um, and again, just super impressive at that age to recognize that. Um, and, and a huge takeaway for anybody listening right now that goes that, you know, we all have to go through the interview process, whether you're interviewing to be a, you know, a small, you know, sales manager or in, in the C-suite, you still have to go through an interview. So I think that's super important. Um, now, what were some of the big milestones or other moments in your career that really stand out to you um, leading up to where you are today? Yeah. So um, going back to that first job, you know, a big milestone for me. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll date it now. So, right. I got that job in 2007. And as you both know, um, a year after, you know, we hit the financial crisis in 2008. Now, um, unfortunately, because of, of, of just how the effect on the industry and of course, everyone, companies, um, people started getting layoffs. And so there was now an opportunity for me um, to, to step into a, a bigger role. Um, unfortunately, you know, some of my colleagues got laid off. And so I saw it as an opportunity to, one, walk into the CFO's office to talk to him, to say, hey, listen, I think I, I'm, I'm up to the task. I can do the job. I can learn. Please invest in me. Take a chance on me. And I got to work. So that, again, you see, maybe because I had taken that bold step in the interview and had yeah. started forming like good relationships, it, I just saw it as an opportunity. And I think that's a takeaway, even in, in situations like this that we're currently facing with COVID, right? You have an opportunity to either see it as, um, are you going to just shell down in or are you right. going to look for ways in which you can provide value to your, to your company? And so that, that, that moment was huge for me because I got a lot of um, um, experience, right? I was right. able to like dive really deeply into projects. I was able to fully understand um, how to support the firm financially. Um, we were able to even do like a um, technology, our accounting software, we were able to upgrade it during that time. And so um, that, that time there, I say, was um, incredible. And the reason why I say it was a milestone is because, again, remember, I studied math in school, right? So I needed to, to pretty much get on-ground experience about the industry. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that time was really great for me, you know, after spending five years there, because I was getting my training um, in the field, as I would mm -hmm. like to call it, I wanted to be able to see how accounting was done or, you know, finance and accounting was done 
in another organization, in another mm -hmm. architectural firm. I was like, maybe maybe the, the HLWA, which is a company I worked at, um, is very good, but I want to be able to see it if I'm going to make a home for myself within this industry, if I want to grow in here. And so I shifted and I shifted to a, excuse me, to a larger firm called Skidmore Wins and Merrill. And I'm grateful for my time there because again, big moments there too. I was able to work on um, uh, work in our, like in our China region. I was able to work on really huge um, New York City projects. I was the mm -hmm. kind of accountant who didn't want to just, you know, be in the back issuing invoices, but like asking our project managers about their projects, asking them to bring me to the, to the site, you know, so that I can, even if it's just to connect with my counterpart on that site. Right. So those moments, I think, um, really set me up for, you know, the role that I took in Mancini without even knowing, you know, that this opportunity will come my way. Well, and we're, we're going to talk about, um, I think that's super, you were a project accountant, right? Um, yes. previous to Mancini. Yes. Yes. So, you know, in terms of, I guess, roles, right. So at the first job I was junior project then I, and I took a step up to project and then at SOM, I, um, was a senior project accountant there. So I kind of, before we move on, we're going to get into Mancini and in your role here today. Um, but I, I want to ask a bit more about that. Um, how, what is the importance of having a cohesive team and connections? Like you said, making the connections, not just being in the background as a project accountant, but making the connection from the accounting side to the project manager, even the clients, the client's counterparts, how does that really drive success and efficiency for, you know, a service centric business like you were in? Yeah, so so for me, I think it is it is integral. It is so it is so important that project accountants think about themselves as a critical member of the project team. Likewise, the project managers thinking about you know the accounting slash finance support as a member of their team. Reason being, there's power in numbers. You know, uh, in my industry, for example when you, you have a project that you want, one of the very first things that you do is you plan for the people who work on the project, who are going to work on the project. A project accountant, you know, during the course of the month, and I'm giving an example because I like to give examples. Yes, um, but we love project, examples here. <laughs> yeah. So, so a project accountant, you know, has the view of being able to now see as your month has, is progressing, who is working on your project. And then, you know, if you have certain rhythms in place, financial rhythms in place where, you know, maybe your project accountant is reviewing the timesheets or the time posted to the project, they're able to raise flags early, right? So for me, that being able to think outside of the box, think outside of just, you know, a monthly billing cycle, think like how, how um, what can I do to ensure that the project manager is successful, that their projects are successful from a financial standpoint mm -hmm. has, has, has the impact of even saving, you know, saving, um, saving project managers from, from issues that can come up on the project site. Right. And what I mean by that is, you know, for example, a, a project I'm remembering, I think we were looking at the numbers, seeing how much time was being spent on a particular phase and it didn't make sense. And so then that prompted the project manager to go back and speak to her team. So for me, that cohesiveness, you know, I, I'm a huge champion of making sure that 
project accountants, project managers are constantly communicating, constantly talking, mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, that, um, that their work that they're doing is there to support them. You know, we might not know what the drawings mean, but we can tell you from the numbers allow us ask the right questions. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, and with so many moving parts, that's so, you know, in any project, not, I mean, I can't even imagine in an architectural firm, but in any project, the the amount of moving parts, that's critical for everybody to, you know, be communicating, to have the same information to, in order to, like you said, work more efficiently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just wanted to address one more thing. Um, and that's the external piece of it, right? What is the importance of the project? Yeah. On the client side, Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, you're issuing these invoices. I say people pay people, right? You issue an invoice and the goal of course, is to make sure that you're able to collect on that invoice, get to know who your client, who the counterpart is. The project managers can tell you, you know, yes, accounting has approved it, but until (laughs) Until that invoice makes its way, you guys know, until that invoice makes its way down and somebody on the other side has, you know, cut that payment, uh, we haven't been, you know, you wouldn't have been able to collect on it. And I, right. and I say there needs to be, um, you know, relationship building, getting to know who, getting to know them, getting to know who makes the decisions right. on that right. side is critical. Um and it showed for me uh, during COVID, right? At the very, like you said, March, because I had been developing these relationships with um, you know, certain key contacts on our client side, I was able to call them just to understand what the status was on, on the projects itself, what's the status on our payments, you know, things like that. But if I had never taken that time out to develop those relationships, who, you know, if I'd called, they'd be like, okay, who's this? Absolutely. You get what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was so critical for, I mean, <laughs> like you said, in project management with um, suppliers, with, you know, real estate, like the people who, you know, you're paying, you're renting from or whatever. Um, yeah, that's, that's huge. And uh, we've kind of touched on it a little. Um, Mancini Duffy, that's an architecture firm, but I'd love to hear more about what the company does, uh, what you do for your clients. Yeah, yeah. So Mancini, uh, we like to call ourselves a technology-first architecture firm. So we specialize in architecture, of course, planning and interior design. Um, And the reason why we call ourselves a technology-first firm is because over the last, I would say now, four years, we've been developing technology to help improve how we deliver projects uh, to our clients. So our clients run from, you know, financial services, um, uh, retail, restaurants, education, um, commercial projects. We have a huge project that we're working on in Times Square. Um, but we had we started thinking about ways in which we can um, use technology to help improve the decision making and design process uh, for our for our folks who work in here, and also just to challenge you know our peers in the profession. And so we have something called a 360 design process, which we've developed where we pull our clients in from very early on uh, in schema, uh, in planning. Uh, and so what I mean by that is, you know, usually a client might, you know, you might have a meeting and then the client says, uh, this is, this, these are the ideas that I have. Um, and usually what will happen is the architect will go back, they'll, they might come up with three different options. You come back and then you show the client and that whole process can take three weeks. 
But through our design, 360 design process, we've essentially shrunk down that process to three hours where we are throwing our clients into their space in VR. And they, they are able to, um, you know, sketch or like share with us the ideas. And we are like sketching in VR. But that, wow. that, mod, that um, VR model is connected to the architect's software, right? So what would usually take three weeks, we've been able to do it in three hours. And then it's just helped make decisions faster. It's also a value add because a lot of the things that you might not catch when uh, you're actually, you know, in construction, we can catch them very early. And so it's been, for me, you know, it's, it's incredible to be able to be a part of this, see how um, I can walk into that design lab now. And I'm telling you, because of how innovative they are and the research that they're doing, I can walk into there. And what I saw like, you know, two weeks ago has been improved upon. And that is coming from like feedback from our clients or the clients ask a question. We're able to then go and implement and change it. Um, but it's, 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 um, it's been amazing, amazing. Mancini used to be solely, you know, a couple of years back used to just solely focus on um, financial services, but we've been able to diversify, you know, the clients that we serve. Well, how amazing is that? Because, you know, I've seen architectural sketches before and it's something that I look at and I can see the detail and precision, but sometimes I just, I can't visualize it. I can't yes. see exactly it's what it is. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, oh, bringing that to such a, a level is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been really helpful for our clients. It's been helpful for our designers. It's just overall improved how, you know, how we work. So I'm looking forward to seeing what else um, comes up you know, in that lab. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's got to be a huge value add to your clients. Yeah. Now, yeah. It kind of jumping into the accounting and finance side of things, are there challenges that you face that are very specific to a business like this? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, you know, my challenge that I think we see in projects, architectural projects, even from the accounting side is something that we call the triple constraint. And that is you want to deliver a project on time, within scope and on budget, right? And that's how you can say that your project is successful. Mm -hmm. um, that challenge of course is, you know, you can study a project and there are so many factors that come up that are just beyond our control. When those factors come up, they can change your scope, right? They can change the budget. Um, a perfect example right now is, you know, supply chain issues that are happening right now, right? So like things that maybe you, may, you were meant to deliver, uh, um, you know, interior, interior of furniture as fixtures to a, to a project uh, within a certain time frame because of all the backlog that's happening, you're not able to, and that affects, that affects your, your, your timeline. That affects how we can either, you know, offboard those, those architects or designers to start doing other projects. So that's one challenge that, uh, you know, any architectural firm will tell you across board is something that we're always trying to balance while making sure that, you know, we're meeting our clients' expectations. Um, the client is satisfied with the work that we do. Uh, from an accounting standpoint, <laughs> specifically, of course, is always, you know, collecting on your invoices, mm. right? Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But um once you issue out that invoice, making sure that uh, your client pays and pays you on time, 
um, is something that I'm always working to improve. I mean, we hear that across the board. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, while that is specific to your business, I think it's specific to all project um, services based businesses. Of course, of course. We hear it a lot. Does your business have trouble managing inventory, projects, or even getting paid on time? Don't let spreadsheets and QuickBooks hold you back. If you want to get your business to a better place, take action now and make the move to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place, instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com business. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com business. netsuite.com business. Okay, so I'm going to take it back to your start at Mancini Duffy in 2017. Um, you actually took on the role of a controller without a super clear idea of what that would entail or prior experience. Um, you had worked as an accountant pre previously. Um, so first, how did you land that role without that prior experience? So I, again, I, I love, I love, I just love the, how my path has unfolded. Yeah. Uh, the way I landed this role at Mancini was because someone remembered me and mentioned my name to our pres Mancini's president, who I had mm. worked with 10 years prior at that very first job at HLW, where I was a junior project accountant. That's how my name came up. Wow. Right. And so um, based on, I guess, my work ethic um, and maybe possible traje trajectory, right? Of course, you can go on LinkedIn and see where how the person has moved on, where the person is at now. Um, I got a phone call. I remember I was, I just had my two, my second child. Wow. And I got a phone call. So I got a phone call saying, hey, would you love to come run a finance team? And understand my situation. So I had, <laughs> my daughter was not two yet. I just gave birth. Oh, right? two I'm under two. I had to, I have two, I had 202 then. So stability, right? <laughs> you would think that so I wouldn't want yeah. to rock the boat too much and then go jump into this role that, like I mentioned, I'd never uh, done before. However, there was a curious, curious side to me that said I should take the phone call. Mm -hmm. I take the mm -hmm. phone call and it is Christian Giordano on the other end, who is telling me about, you know, all the changes that uh, Christian Giordano is the president of Mancini. He's telling me about all the changes that he's looking to make, his vision for where he wants the firm to go. And he thought that we should meet up for lunch. Mm -hmm. So the interview ended up being a really fancy lunch where, <laughs> <laughs> where um, essentially, you know, we talked about, um, I, again, you know, I guess maybe that, that bug that's in me of like laying my cards out mm -hmm. on the table um, I went into that interview with like everything that I thought wouldn't go, uh, would set me up for, you know, failure, mm -hmm. right? All the fears that I had about taking this role. 
I went into that interview and I said, listen, if I'm going to assume this role, we need to make sure that we set me up for success. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is, you know, um, I had experience and I think that was the, the, the uniqueness about me. I had experience of how I approached um, understanding our projects. I had 10 years of experience of working in the industry, working on all sorts of um, scale in types of projects that I had touched. I had seen region location. Mm-hmm. So I went in there and I said, hey, listen, I can do project accounting in my sleep, right? I can do this. But if you want me to become a controller, then I'm now going to be exposed to firm-wide information where, you know, whereas in the organizations that worked in the past, I didn't necessarily have purview to that. He right. said, well, don't worry about that. I will um, make sure that we get you a financial consultant who can, you know, guide you and be there sort of as a mentor for you um, while you are settling in and, you know, and figuring things out. I said, okay. So we, we've addressed my knowledge gap. The next thing I, uh, I mentioned, actually that came last, I think, because I said work we can do. Let me make sure that there's alignment, value alignment with myself and the firm. So one of the very first questions I asked was around um, flexibility for family, right? I mentioned I had two kids under two, so I needed some flexibility with, you know, coming to work, showing up. And I wanted to work at an organization that understood this current season I was at in my, in my life. And he was like, we're very family oriented from, so that checked off a point. Um, I have, um, I'm multifaceted. And what I mean by that is I'm always thinking about ways in which to um, solve issues for people. So I had a nonprofit I was working on. I mentioned my nonprofit work. I do um, projects in Nigeria in education and had, I think at that point in time, I was still in school. And I don't think a potential employer would have understood why this accountant went back to get a second master's in education and social policy. So all these questions I had, we addressed it during that interview. And and I I walked out of there feeling like, I think I can do this. He essentially hired for character. I I, I say this, you hire for character, skill can be learned. I love that. Skill can be learned, right? Especially if if the if your potential hire is is already an A plus player. They have a track record that you, you know, you've been able to look at. Um, for me, there were also people who could like vouch to, I guess, my work ethic. Mm-hmm. So he took a chance on me. This is like high, this is like uh, when you apply for your first job, right? And then the first job says, oh, you need to have 10 years experience. Well, like, how am I going to get the experience if you don't <laughs> give me a shot? Right. It's chicken or the egg thing. Shot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If you don't give me a shot. So and, and an important thing he did say to me was like, you try it. And if after like, you know, six months, a year, you don't like it, that's fine, right? That removes that fear of failure that a lot of us feel when it comes to, you know, going to the next level, doing things that scare you. It's, oh, I'm afraid that I might fail. Yes, of course, there are high stakes, you know, being a controller and and failing at that level, controller, CFO, and failure at that level. However, like I mentioned, I was an A player. I was ready to go. I was ready to take the opportunity. So that's how I landed it. You took a chance on me and I got a double promotion. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And we're going to get into, I mean, we're going to get into you, you becoming the CFO of Mancini here in a second, but I just, so you, you mentioned you had had 
um, experience really on a kind of project by project basis, but not really a firm, firm wide, right. Infor- not yeah. insight into the firm wide information. So I, I want to know as the controller, what were some of the KPIs and metrics you were tracking? Like what was the difference between a project level and a firm level? And how did you become successful in that role? Yeah. So once I got, once I joined Mancini and started the work, right, I began to see, um, all aspects, not just financial, but like HR, IT, legal. Um, Mancini, you know, depending on, it, it, it truly depends on your firm size. So we're a mid-sized firm. And so you sometimes your the controller role would be sort of hybrid, right? Where you're touching on all these different things. So of mm-hmm. course, once I hit the ground running, one of the metrics that I wanted to make sure that I, I understood fully was just how the system worked, how their billing cycle was working, How are we getting invoices out to the clients on time? How are we following up on these invoices? Do the project managers understand how the monthly accounting process works? How we need to close, you know, um, close um, out our month so that we can then um, provide them with valuable information that affects the decisions that they're making on their projects. So from a financial perspective, those were the, I I mentioned three things. Those are the three things I, I worked on first, right? Reduce, um, reducing um, our collections period, getting the PMs, reducing how long it takes us uh, to close out the month, and then also educating the PMs when it, when it um, came to understanding project profitability. Th- those three things I truly worked on uh, first while then familiarizing myself with the HR piece of it, you know, like mm. we had um, our, we had a PEO. So that's like, you know, an external organization that was um, uh, do, handling our HR. So just liaisoning with them, developing those relationships with them, making sure that um, employee engagement also was, was well, was, um, was strong here. That was very important to me. Uh, so, yeah, so those are some of the things that I, I started looking at. I was able to improve um, greatly um, those, those, those metrics. Well, I love how this t- ties back to what you said earlier, what, what one of your, either your first or your second role where, you know, you really focused on breaking down those barriers between teams, between the accounting and finance side and the project managers and even the clients. I think that, that all plays into what you were able to change at Mancini too. Yes, yes, yeah. So, so for me, it was okay. What can I do immediately? <laughs> what can mm-hmm. I change mm-hmm. short term? And mm-hmm. as I'm as ambitious, I, sometimes maybe I would even call myself overly ambitious. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you take a second, a pause, just to reflect back, then what can you really change long term? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's almost like you know, when I took the job, because I didn't have the experience, you could even say that I had something to prove. Right. Prove mm-hmm. to prove to the people, even though they had no questions at all, when I say prove to people, prove to the other firm leaders, they had no questions at all. They fully trusted me, but there were vendor partners who was, who were like, wait, what? She's not an accountant by training. She doesn't have a CPA. Mm-hmm. She just like operational, you know? So there were, there were, you could say that I had something to prove. However, remove all of that and just be willing to learn and learn fast. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, whatever you can change, maybe do that. My experience at uh, the firm that I worked at prior, SOM, gave me the rigor 
that I could apply to Mancini, right? So maybe with areas where, where Mancini was a little lax, I was able to take that rigor from working at a really large company and bring that year here. And we saw huge improvements. And that's, uh, it's kind of the thing where I was, I was interviewing a consultant and he was explaining this complex business topic. And I joked something along the lines of, oh, I need to get my MBA. And he said, I never learned this in school. It was on the job, <laughs> you know, yes. mm-hmm. it's the experience yes. that really helps um, be successful and kind of speaking of that success, what skills do you think controllers need today to be successful? So I think um, controllers need to really think about themselves more than just being, you know, the gatekeepers of accounting or the gatekeepers of numbers. Um, There's opportunity for you, one, to be, um, you know, forward thinking, being strategic. If you're you're a controller that works, um, you know, in a firm where there is a CFO, right? Like, how are you really providing value uh, to your CFO so that the things that um, the CFO needs to be thinking about that should be top of mind, you're providing that to them. Then another thing I think controllers also need to do is develop their people, right? Develop the accountants who are working under you, develop your team, listen to them. They are the ones probably even fully ingrained into the project. So make sure that you're developing them so that they, they can be successful in their role, which will then in turn make the controller successful. So those are, you know, when I think about my experience, I really needed to rely on, um, on the team members. I had two people who, who had worked at this organization for 25 years when I came here. Who's going to know more about the organization than both of them, right. you know? So I needed mm-hmm. to make sure that I made space for them to feel like they, their opinions mattered like they could, they could bring suggestions to me, right? And so that's, you know, developing your team, strengthening your staff, um, strengthening the relationship with your staff because they have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of knowledge. So it's not just working in a silo, just, you know, focused on, um, you know, month-end reporting or financial reporting, but like just beginning to get out of that box so that you can really position yourself as a um as a very important member of the, of the organization who's, who's really keyed into the success of the firm. Well, you kind of segued perfectly into this. Um, how did you make the transition to CFO in 2018? And is there any advice you can share from that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, for me, I, I personally feel like from day one, even though my title was controller, I always worked as a CFO. Right. Mm -hmm. I was always um, looking into the future. I was um, always being, you know, being a strategic member, uh, sorry, a strategic partner to the CEO. I was providing them information all the time, financial information. And they weren't used to receiving it, um, you know, as often as I was providing it to them. And I think a key thing that I did was um, breaking it down in language that they understand, right? You're working with architects and designers they are visual people right and so one of the ways it, you know i i um thought about presenting information to them was visually right like how can you present information to them in ways in which that they will understand and so that because i sort of was always working in that um working as a cfo 
my transition was essentially Christian are present saying, okay, enough of this. We've done, you've had this controller title for a year. We need to um, give you your right title, right? You've spent the last year uh, sort of learning about the organization. You've now implemented a bunch of changes you want to do. You've, you've corrected um, our external partnerships that we have with our different vendors. You're really guiding and giving us like strategic um, financial initiatives that we need to implement into the organization. Okay, we need to change your title. <laughs> and so that's how, that's essentially how that happened. Well, so I'm curious what, I mean, how would you describe, obviously you were saying you came in, you really were working with the mentality of the CFO from the beginning, but what are some of the key differentiators between a CFO and a controller? Um, yeah. I mean, how, and like, I guess to answer that, you might, what are the differences in, for example, KPIs and metrics that you were, um, tracking as a CFO versus a controller? Yeah, so um, when I think about this, right, in, in my organization or mid-sized company, sometimes, you know, there might not be clear differences. Um, however, when I was just thinking about some of the tasks, for example, that I, I shut off moving up, right, when I started building, building out my own team to make sure that there's really time for me to step fully into that CFO role, I thought about, you know, what, my, what was my focus on? I was, when I first came, yes, I was focused on the finance department, making sure that everything that they're doing worked well. We were um, providing information to our project managers on time, but my focus really needed to be on the entire company. So that's one difference, I think, between a controller and a CFO, where, whereas a controller sometimes doesn't have uh, an opportunity to focus on the entire company, a CFO, mm -hmm primarily needs to be making sure that everything, you know, all the different departments, everything is working as needed. So a, a clear difference is on focus. Um, another thing that I thought about was, you know, the time frame. right? When I was a controller, it was very short-term thinking, right? What am I doing now? How are my reports um, affecting the decisions we're making short-term? But as a CFO, I needed to be able to see past a year, I needed to be able to be keyed into what our long-term goal goals are for Mancini and how we make that possible, right? Mm -hmm. So time frame in terms of like what, what the controller is focusing on and what the CFO is focusing on, there's a clear difference in that. And mm -hmm. I think one of the other, um, you know, last, last areas that I'll bring up as a point uh, is, you know, what is, what is the, the CFO's mission, vision? It's really strategy, right? How are mm -hmm. we setting the tone for the financial actions that the firm uh, has to take? A controller's role, their mission, again, which kind of allows the CFO focus on their strategies is, is from a compliance perspective, right? How mm -hmm. are they making sure that everything that we're, we're producing, reports we're producing, all things that are happening on the projects we're working on is compliant um, with, with, with all that we need to do from an accounting perspective. So those three, three different areas that I've mentioned, I think are ways, are some clear differences when I think about how I'm functioning as a CFO and how I was functioning as a controller um, right. that I wanted to share. One of the things that I, I did, you know, making that move was making sure that I hired help, right? Mm -hmm. If I was going yeah. to move fully into CFO and not use... <laughs> 
uh, my some of my brain cells to think about, you know, like the day to day items, I needed to make sure that I had the right team built. Yeah. Right. So like some of the tasks that I was doing month end closing or or payroll that I don't enjoy, I needed to make sure that there was somebody else here that was strong taking care of those things. So I didn't have to like, you know, second guess or like having to double check their right. work. And so I made sure to, to do that. Uh, and so then that allowed me fully propel into the CFO role. And I, I mean, so you were in the CFO role for about two years um, when COVID hit. So I'm curious too, how did your priorities change or evolve amid the pandemic in this role? Oh, yes. Um, man, <laughs> you hit on I it earlier, say, but. <laughs> yes, I, I will say um, for a lot of, I mean, a lot of us, right? We, who has led a company through a pandemic that where you, you went from having to, in March, having to really think very, very quickly about what levers you needed to pull yeah. or, you know, pause, pull so that the company could just make it through the next couple of months because we didn't know what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what I mean by that is in terms of one, the client relationships, right? Looking at our portfolio, what, which one of our clients immediately or which one of our projects immediately went on hold, Mm -hmm. right? You think about restaurants, right? I mentioned that uh, we were doing a lot of restaurants, a lot of work in hospitality. So you begin to start looking at, um, um, looking at what or which one of what in your portfolio is affected and how can you make decisions quickly to make sure that one even if you're having that revenue gap that one you're also reducing your expenses right so like these are some of the things (laughs) that I had to um, think about really quickly I and I I attribute some of that also to my math degree right if you think about it, it at the end of the day it boils down to math it's either your revenue if your revenue is going down um, you want to stay in business, you need to look at your expenses. So my, my team and I went through, right, went through the expenses, looked at who we can either call in for, call in for, um, for favors on payment extensions, things like that. And so now once we started going through the pandemic and now I, I see, you know, you're now trying to get out of it. Now we're on the other end of it where clients are now ready to do work. Right. And so you're having to navigate one hiring people at once because either projects that went on hold, they're already back. And then, of course, you're also backfilling um, work that you weren't able to win over the last two years. Right. There are new projects that have come up now. And so it's this delicate balance. I like I like to call it of (laughs) just making sure that you're one really you have a lot of clarity around um, around your numbers. I have a lot of clarity around what I'm reporting to our, um, to our leadership team so that we know uh, what decisions need to be made. Right now, like I mentioned, we need to hire people, right? So who, what, what, what is taking the backseat so that we make sure we have the right talent here? And I, I think you kind of have something that struck me when I, I've read your book is you have this unique perspective because you are an accountant taking on a lot of responsibility during the 2008 financial crisis, and now you're a CFO during a pandemic. (laughs) Uh, Something that we've seen an increase in importance during uh, these tumultuous times is scenario planning. Have you found that to be true? And if so, what challenges have you faced while trying to plan in unprecedented times? 
Yeah, so I, I have, it, it is critical. <laughs> it is very important. And for me, you know, the challenge that we face specific to our industry is one, just knowing what your clients are going to do, right? We don't, if we don't, um, if the client doesn't make a decision to move forward in project, there is your projections are only as good as that, as the information that's coming, coming from, from the clients, coming from the project managers. And so being able to like put together um, different plans, right? For our core, core work, the stuff that we know is going to constantly come in, being able to plan against, um, you know, against those fees is important for us to know what can we do based off of that knowledge. Then based off of the knowledge that, um, you know, certain clients might pick up, for example, with our restaurant work. Now we're on the other end, restaurants and, um, and aviation. We're on the other end where all of this work is coming in. So like, how much staff do we need to hire to make sure um, this work is going to get, is going to get done? So all the different levers, I met, like, as I had mentioned, just having a good understanding of, of what those different levers do for, for our business, how it affects the decisions that we make is critical. I think one of the things that happens with scenario planning is that we go through the scenario and we don't document <laughs> what, we what we did to help us get through it. Uh -huh. And so I think documentation <laughs> Is really important because the fact of the matter is in business, we might not have a situation as drastic. Actually, we pray we don't have a situation as drastic as um, COVID, but issues happen all the time. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned, big projects can go on hold. Well, then what happens to your company when that happens? You need to know at foundation what decisions you need to make. Um, and so I think documentation will really help when it comes to like, you know, solving issues going forward um, around, um, around the ebbs and flows of, of running a business. Well, and I was, you know, going to ask you when you say documentation, I mean, to me, this is technology. You, you, you yep. even said Mancini technology is at the forefront of Mancini. Um, so how has technology made your job as both the controller and the CFO easier, or you could even say harder um, <laughs> and in what specific ways? Yeah, so technology, well, outside of the folks on the floor, for me, technology has made my job easier in the sense of being able to push a button to run, to have, um, you know, an overview of the financial health of our company, being able to see how our projects are doing individually, being able to run, um, you know, reports based on project managers. It's really helped me rather than spending a lot of time, like, you know, messing around with data. And then, um, you know, when you mess around with that data, you don't even know if you then go make a mistake in there. For me, technology has helped um, the day-to-day -day aspect of, of just um, being able to see information really, really clearly. So for me, we do have a system that we use. Uh, we have a system that we use in the industry that has helped a lot. Um, in some ways, for our project managers, you know, it's it's not as intuitive as it can be. I do feel like maybe the next version will be. So when I think about how it has made our jobs harder, it might have made our jobs harder in terms of our project managers going in to be able to plan their projects at ease. Um, so I say to them, think about the user of the technology. Right. Don't just create um, softwares that um, 
that, that don't think about all the different folks who will use it. Um, and so for me, like that's, that's one way in which I think has made it harder for us. But overall, it's made my job easier. I'm able to like just move through the day um, with ease. Now, to wrap it up here, all this really showcases how you've become a bold finance leader. What advice do you have for others on becoming a bolder finance leader? Um, the one advice I would say, you know, and the word bold, I mean, in my, in my book, it comes from a framework mm-hmm. of, of what I feel like are the, the, the themes that have, have showed up in, in, in my leadership, in how mm-hmm. I operated as an employee and now how I'm operating as a leader. And so I'll, I'll quickly share it. B is be yourself, right? Your employees, the folks who work on your team and the floor, they need to see a leader who's real. Mm. And that's how people connect with you. Uh, and so if you're not used to being vulnerable, start being vulnerable. It makes people, it makes, um, you know, the folks who work with you buy into the vision and the dream that you're trying to create for your organization um, because they see someone who's real with them, right? Always being open to you, opening your mind to new definitions and opportunities. So really challenge the status quo. How have things been run in your organization and how can you change certain processes, certain systems so that, um, you, so that things run better for you, right? Mm-hmm. Don't just do things just because they, that's how it's always been done, but really think about what opportunity can you take to move your, your team slash company where you want it to go. L is lifting others. So think about how you're lifting your employees. Think about how you're lifting people in your groups. How are you providing them with mentorship? How are you providing them with um, opportunities to develop their careers if they work, you know, if they stay at length with you, right? Mm -hmm. So think about ways in which you can lift others in your organization. And D is don't wait, do it now. Um, And the, the idea behind that is, you know, a lot of us are just waiting waiting for the perfect moment, perfect time, but there are ideas that you might have. There's opportunities for you to share them in your organization that can help, you know, help tie into the overall success of your firm. Don't wait, do it now. Right. So that's, that framework is, you know, when I think about how to become a bold finance leader, start with that framework and bet on yourself. Your ideas Mm -hmm. are valid don't be afraid to pivot, right? Bold leaders are not afraid to pivot. You put out an idea and it might not, uh, it might not resonate or work as you have planned in your head, but don't be afraid to pivot, right? So you need to be open to being flexible, um, being open to listening. Bold leaders listen, right? Because you're, you're open to feedback. Um, and um, I, I, I truly believe, you know, if you take these things or these tips and then, and then apply it to who you are, you will begin to see changes within yourself as a leader and the folks who are leading you um, will, will see that change too. Wow. Well, there's no better way than to end on that note, Bola. I could keep talking with you forever. I'm sure Megan feels the same, um, mm-hmm. but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this valuable insight. Um, we really appreciate your time and we just look forward to working with you again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Wow. I loved that interview, Megan. I loved hearing about how Bola really bet on herself throughout each new step of her career, each interview and each role, even if she didn't have a whole lot of experience. Like she said, skills really can be taught, but character can't. I I just thought that was so great. 
Right, and her background was so amazing to hear about and just her journey uh, as she's gone through her different roles and now as a CFO. Um, for me, I mean, I love to hear the framework about being a bold leader, uh, especially with things being so crazy right now. I think yeah. uh, it's almost like people are holding back a bit and it's refreshing to hear a mantra that says go for it. And we, we actually got to see how that played out in her life. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much to Bola williams Ali for joining us on this episode. And if you want to hear more from her and maybe even jump in the hot seat with some questions for her, join our webinar on March 16th at 11 a.m. Pacific. I have left a link in the description of this episode to help you register. And I also want to be sure, of course, Megan, to thank you. I'm already looking forward to our next recording together. Well, thanks for having me again. And it's so exciting to join you and I'm I'm having fun on these recordings. Well, we'll have fun next time too. I also want to take a second to quickly thank our editing crew over at Lampstand and as always all of you for tuning in. If you don't ever want to miss any episodes then make sure you subscribe to our channel and give us a rating and review if you feel so inclined. Thanks so much and we'll talk soon. Bye. You just listened to the NetSuite podcast. Be sure to tune in every week with more NetSuite developments, stories, and insights into the benefits of one integrated system to help you run your business.